Hi, this is uh, Teemu Arena from Biohackers Podcast. This is our second episode, this time with Dr. Katal Gurin. And uh, he's also going to be speaking at the Biohacker Summit. Biohacker Summit is on the 24th of September in Helsinki, Finland. We have just an amazing lineup coming of people interested in digital health, quantified self, biohacking, life logging, you name it. I mean, everyone's going to be there. There's people coming from uh, around 15 countries now that I look at the list. Uh, it's a truly international event. You don't definitely don't want to miss it. Uh, the program is superb and the company is exhibiting there uh, as well, not to mention uh, the participants. So check it out, biohackersummit.com. So without further ado, uh, let me introduce our today's interview uh, guest, uh, Dr. Katal Gurin. We had the privilege of speaking together in Belfast, in Ireland, at the EntryConf. And uh, I mean, we had never met before, but we went on stage together. Yeah. And uh, we, we gave a presentation together and it, it just flowed. Uh, as we've been working for years uh, together. So that was wonderful. So Katal Gurin, uh, he lectures at the Dublin City University yes. uh, School of Computing. He leads a research group at the Insight Center for Data Analytics. Is that right? That's right. Um, I lead a research group of about 10 people doing research in life logging and personal data, personal data retrieval. Right. So, so he has really hands-on experience in developing tools for live logging and using different tools available on the market since and 2006. 2000, uh, that was the reason why I got involved in the first place to build better search engines. So, yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that's a long time. Uh, nine years and counting. Um, he has recorded, according to him, 15 million wearable camera images and millions of other sensor readings. Oh, I know, but yeah, yeah. I guess we're getting beyond that one. Uh, I can imagine there is a lot of um, things uh, involved in just to deal with that amount of data. We're going to uh, revisit that question later on. He has also written a book on the topic, if you're interested. So it's, it's uh, Life Logging, and the subtitle is Personal Big Data. Yeah, can be downloaded in PDF just by doing a Google search. Yeah, so Cattle Gurren is truly a heavyweight when it comes to self-quantification. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Thank you very much, Very. Pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to attending the Biohacker Summit on the 24th of September. Awesome. So, uh, Katal, what got you interested in gathering all this personal data? Yeah, so maybe my my reason for getting involved in the first place may be different to many other quantified self-enthusiasts. I started by being curious about new forms of personal search engine. My PhD had been in web search engines. I'd spent time working as a postdoc on video search engines. And then this opportunity came about in our research center when Microsoft donated two small wearable cameras, just like the ones I'm wearing here. And we suddenly realized we could generate 4,000 images a day. And to very quickly, you will need some kind of a search engine over that data. Hmm. So my interest started off being, let me get a lot of data for a week or two weeks or a month. And then a month became six months, became a year. And let's try and build better search tools over this data. What happens if you want to find the bottle of wine you drank at the Biohacker Summit last year? How do you find that? That kind of problem. I mean, I guess I can ask some friend who was there with me if my memory is not... If they remember. But to get down to the details of things, you need a search engine because our memories 
the memories of your friend will maybe make mistakes, maybe not fully accurate, will have forgotten things, maybe not even remember the biohackers so much in the evening time because they were having a good time. We don't know. How, but, how common it is actually that people remember things in a different way than well, actually happened? That's a very good question. It's something that is almost impossible to give an answer to because you don't remember when you remember incorrectly. You think about it. So you'd have to do long-term long memory studies. And we're actually involved in those at the moment um, with the University of Leeds in the UK. We've done one after three years of data gathering. And my hope is to go back and do one after 10 years of data gathering to go back to, to evaluate the accuracy of your memory when you are shown the real reality of what you did 10 years ago versus what you remember doing 10 years ago. And it's never really been possible to do a good memory study like this before because typically if you're doing memory studies, you keep a diary and you go back and refer to the diary. But the, the hypothesis in our study is that by keeping a diary, you're reinforcing the memory. It's not natural. So we have to do a more natural approach. Hence, we use the cameras because that's our true log of our life activities. Right. And, um, well... Considering the tools, I mean, Microsoft got you hooked on this uh, thing and yeah. you've been continuing uh, doing it. Um, so let's let's go deeper into this question of search. So I would imagine once you have 15 million images, uh, you don't really look at single images anymore. I don't even look at the data in general anyway. It just goes into a big archive on a machine in the corner of my office here. Um, so we need to use basically artificial intelligence to try to extract knowledge from the data. And that's where our most of our research is at the moment. So we use software that will extract from images a thousand different things. Uh, maybe a, a coffee cup here or a mobile phone here. It'll extract knowledge from the images, and then we'll use that as a basis for the search engine. So mm. it's, a, it's a complex artificial intelligence-based approach that learns through example what a coffee cup looks like, learns what a car key looks like, and then is able to figure out itself as it sees more images, what's in the images. So what kind of picture can you paint of your day with okay, so AI? You can pick the, actually, one of my PhD students did some interesting work on this. We were able to generate, obviously, visual records of your day, three or 4,000 images a day. It's not really useful because you don't have time to look at them, put them on a big screen, they're going to be too small anyway. We've done some abstraction work with that. We've abstracted the day into colors every minute, for example, as a very simple approach. And that allows us to see the times you're in your office because your office has a particular color signature. Your home has a different color signature. And for everybody, the color signatures of different moments of their life are different. So I can glance at a screen and know in a day or a week or a month how much time I spend in the office at home, out in the in the green areas and the fields, how much time I spend driving, etc. So that's a very simple approach to take. We've also looked at how we can generate textual summaries of your life experience, just like a diary would be. This morning I came to work at half six in the morning, I had lunch with my colleague, and then we had this interview now. We generate those kind of life experience um, textual annotations. We've also generated variations of that that represent a day in terms of sets of icons, work, office, food, coffee, all those different kind of things. So there's many different approaches we've taken, and each one allows you to view your life in different ways, and view your experience in different ways. The one I find most appealing is still the, the what we call the color of life, which is just a 
large spread of color on a per minute basis over a day, a week, or a month. In your life. So basically, you're, uh, you, you find data visualization of the massive amounts of data uh, the most useful tool for personally to tap into. Um, yeah, because the search technologies, we can do them. We're, we have search technologies built already. But the use case is more about reflection and understanding yourself and self-improvement. You don't often need to go back and find what was the make of that bottle of wine or who was the person I was talking to at a party last summer, that kind of stuff, okay? But you do need to understand your life better for self-improvement, and that's where the summarization visualization tools come in. So would you look at something like uh, how much time you spent at office instead of... Uh, Very simple thing to look at. And that's the first thing I will look at when I look at a past piece of data. Because especially in terms of productivity and trying to identify how productive, how regular your days are. Like one of the example things I was trying to optimize recently was my time to get up in the morning. To have that on a graph that's as straight as possible because that's the most optimal way to be productive. So I started um, to get up at 5 a.m. because I'd recently come back at that stage from a trip to Asia and it was easy to do and then try to optimize and keep that as much as I could over a long period of time. So that kind of thing. So, analyzing visualize. so this feedback loop that you get from uh, looking at the data, does, does that result in behavior change? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in simple ways, like trying to identify, trying to change my work habits, trying to change even my times of eating, trying to change my times of getting up, times of going to bed. Simple, simple thing. If you can abstract the data into a nice visualization, then you can get an overview of your of your life experience very, very fast and make judgments and choices based on that. And then I end up finding that it was trying to get a symmetrical life experience. Didn't expect to be doing that, but trying to get the days to start at the same time, the color changes to come at the same time every day and try to get stuff as regular as possible. Hmm. I recently uh, used an application called Rescue Time. Yeah. Out uh, how I use computers and how much I use yeah. uh, time on productive things uh, and things that are, that are counterproductive like social media mm -hmm. and uh, all kinds of entertainment science and so on. And uh, to my uh, amazement or just to get horrified, I realized that 40, 41% of the time that I'm awake, um, I'm sitting in front of my computer doing all kinds of things. Yep. I was happy about the split in terms of uh, how much I use time and productive tools, but that really put me into thinking, does it, can I, can I sort of like maybe have less screen time and get still the same things done? I believe yeah. that's possible. I don't know if that's possible or not. I'd love to get to the point where that is possible. Um, trying to get back down towards the, the four hour work week type thing, so it'll be as productive as possible. I'd love to find a secret of doing that. Um, but right now, all I can give back is just the visualizations of your experience trying to build on top of that. Yeah. So it would be very, very cool to do that. Really, this, um, this sort of makes you self-aware. It makes you aware of data gathered in the long term. So as, I think as human beings, we are not very good at having, um, having a feeling of, let's say, how much I've been sleeping on average this week, how much I've been sitting in front of my computer this week on average compared to last week. And, and these kind of things, uh, once you have them brutally in front of you, numbers, uh, or whatever visualization you have, that, that really puts you into thinking. Sure, and it's, it's, a, it's a quantified self-idea of if it can be quantified, it can be changed. Right. 
So uh, going into the uh, sort of um, different ways of gathering data, uh, mm. I would imagine right now we have all the sensors on ourselves and uh, it used to be just a phone or, uh, or a camera. Um, how about like internal things? Uh, have you been experimenting with smart objects that uh, realize when you interact with them? Given the reasonable opportunity, I would do that. I just haven't done it yet. I've been focusing on wearable cameras, the Google Glass type cameras, trying to gather as much of my daily life experience as possible. With bio type sensing, I would have used basis watches and heart rate monitors and various things like that, but I have never gone into the internal body sensing. I considered doing blood sugar monitoring just out of interest um, two or three years ago, but I've never took that particularly far. Hmm. It didn't like to be have actually invasiveness of that every day would have been a little bit awkward. So I didn't do that. So what are the sort of favorite gadgets uh, that you have come along that have been useful? I, I would imagine you have gone through an evolution of different cameras. and. Uh, have, and if you look carefully behind me, you can see them on the wall right back there. Um, I've gone through quite a lot of cameras over the time because cameras is the main thing we're interested in, the computer vision work and the search engines. Um, starting off with the Microsoft Sense Cam back in 2006, it was a wonderful device. I think it could take, if, we, if I changed the SD card, I could take 5,000 images a day, pretty much one every 10 seconds for the waking hours. It was wonderful. Um, I don't think any camera has come along that's reached that level again yet. Um, wow. Isn't that many have been produced? They were doing short supply. You only took VGA images, but that was enough for what we wanted to do, the computer vision work and visualizing your life experience and searching your life experience. We moved on to Vicon Reviews, which was a licensed version of the Microsoft SenseCam about 2009. And then we moved on to the OMG Autographer, which is here about two years ago. And that's now my favorite device. Um, it gathers around about 2,000 images in a day. Not as many as Microsoft SenseCam, but they're five megapixel images. Moving on from that, we also use, actually I wear both at the moment, the narrative clip. Still version one, version two coming out soon, giving me about 2,000 extra images a day. Um, the more images we get, the better for training our algorithms. If I was to choose the one device that I prefer most, it would actually have to be the Google Glass. Mm -hmm. It gives us the idea of capturing data, but also from our field of view rather than around your chest, but also gives you the screen to view back information on. Whereas these cameras are just gathering data, if they Bluetooth to your phone, great, but it's not that convenient. It's not really pervasive computing very much, whereas Google Glass gives you input and output on the one device to make a useful, sensible, real-time memory support system. I just recently saw news about a startup that's making a drone that is uh, wonderful for selfies. So yeah. when are you going to start uh, walking on the street and there is a drone following you? So we actually have a project in my research team. We're about to hopefully get funding to do drone-based data analytics, where the drone is an independent drone that will follow an object in the real world. We actually didn't do it with a viewpoint of following me or following my colleagues around. We did it with a viewpoint of security, um, asset management, et cetera. But um, that, given the opportunity to do that, absolutely, that'd be very interesting to be able to go and gather the data from cameras that you pass by in the environment. I'm not sure about in Finland, but in Ireland, we've got an awful lot of security cameras. Hmm. If you can gather that data about yourself and your activities, that'll be great. Eventually, we will be able to do that, but as of yet, that's not feasible or possible. I, it's just like this idea in my mind occurred like, 
people would be on the street and everyone would have their own little drone following them. I, I guess if you're a tourist and you want to have a lot of selfies taken, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this, of course, provokes the question of um, privacy yeah. and uh, security and so yeah. on. So, so what's your experience on that one? Okay, so my, I'll give you a few different answers to that. I guess a few different parts of the answer. My experience of wearing cameras for nine over nine years now is actually that people don't mind so much. Um, maybe sometimes it's because they don't know what it is. And when they ask what it is, strangers in the street ask what it is, I'll tell them that it's a camera, a research project from the university, and they're normally okay with that. People are actually more concerned about the sound. They want to know is it recording sound. If it's taking a picture every 10, 20 seconds, they don't mind so much. If it's recording sound, people seem to have a problem with that. Right. Which, if you imagine moving from a picture every 10 seconds to 18 hours a day video recording of what you're experiencing, then that will pose more interesting privacy problems. Mm -hmm. But we have done some research into privacy and privacy-aware software solutions to support visual life logging. Um, and it was very interesting because there's no agreed definition of privacy. There's no agreed understanding across different jurisdictions what privacy means. In the US, it means something different to in Finland, to in Ireland, to being in Japan, where I wrote the article. It's really a, a concept that's not fixed. Um, so one size, one solution, one size solution doesn't fit all jurisdictions, doesn't fit all technologies. So it's a really interesting challenge we have to address in society as we go forward because wearable cameras like the narrative clip will become more common. Things like Google Glass, sure, the first version didn't work out very well, but the second version is coming out. So when you have their smart eyeglass, as soon as there's a killer application for a wearable camera technology with a screen in front of your eye, then it'll become commonplace. When it becomes commonplace, somebody to hit the store switch, keep your data forever, is a very simple thing to do. So society will have to address these issues. And I guess it's going to be the same as how we address issues with cameras when they first came out. They weren't liked because they could take pictures of people, but now it's common. Smartphones weren't liked when they came out, but now they're common. The um, television, radio, everything had these criticisms when they came out first, but now they're standard common technologies. And even more than that, society builds up a usage policy. You don't play your radio very loud walking down the street. You don't go taking pictures in changing rooms as you're going to the gym in the evening or the morning time. So we have a policy of what becomes acceptable to use and people stick to that. I think this will be something very, very similar. There'll be places where you can't record your, your life log and a place where you can. And right. work inside of that. So it's, it's basically the technology spreads first and the cultural practices will follow. Yeah, and that's what's been the case in history all the way along up until now. I don't see why it's going to be any different now. And if it is different, the danger is that the law will step in to stop something happening, which would be remarkably beneficial. So let's hope that technology leads the way and the law catches up to technology. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, the app originals. When they saw the camera, they thought that you can capture someone's soul and yes. they would never die because they're in the photo. And yeah. they, were, they were afraid of this kind of technology. In a similar way, people today uh, are a bit afraid of the idea that uh, they would be recorded when you are having a conversation. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting thing because from our point of view as a search engine scientist, 
I would love to have every word I've ever heard indexed into a search engine and to go back to any point in time and play back the, the last conversation with your grandmother or things like that that are valuable that are lost and gone forever. But there's no reason for them anymore to be lost and gone forever. So they can be there. Just people are afraid that they will be used against them somehow. Mm. But there's an interesting thing about sound that in images from wearable cameras, we can build software to review your day, to summarize your day, and get the key points out in maybe a minute of browsing. With audio, you can't browse. It still takes 18 hours to play back 18 hours of audio. You can maybe double the speed and do some kind of event segmentation, but you're still going to have to listen to a lot of sound to find something you're interested in. And who has time for that? Nobody has time at the end of the day. So um, it's a very interesting argument that's made in terms of people not liking sound, but it's not so feasible to actually go and use sound in a, in a logical way. So it's a very interesting issue we'll, we will solve in the future as we move from cameras to video. This probably changes the whole conversation about privacy questions and what is a public and what is a private space. I mean, social media already pushed the boundary. When I go and speak in any kind of place, even if there's five, six people uh, in the room or 500 or 5,000 people, I consider that as a public space nowadays. People might be tweeting, they tag me on Facebook. Yeah, you'll be in pictures on Twitter. It's, it's a, once you walk out of your front door, um, you're in a public environment. So can you really assume you're going to get privacy in a public environment? I, don't, I personally don't think that you should be able to make an assumption that there will be no data capture that includes you as you walk outside mm. your own private environment. In a way, that's almost like a return to a tribal society. It's just like Marshall McLuhan was talking about the development of uh, communication technologies and mediums that um, they will bring us back into the global village. So yeah. everyone in the village knows each other uh, or is capable at least to extract some information about who is who. And uh, the, the people in a tribal society, they painted the history of their tribe on their skin, um, nothing was private, uh, really. So the worst thing that could happen to you is to be abandoned uh, by this community uh, so that you have to leave the tribe. Uh, in today's society, it's sort of almost like reverse. I, you know, I go home and I sort of try not to look at the neighbors and, yeah. and uh, so, uh, so I have this very strong sense of individualism. So I think questions of privacy are bound culturally and and the boundaries of privacy are, are shaped by the times we are in and the culture we live in times are in the jurisdiction we're in the, the expectation of privacy changes over time 200 years ago there was much less expectation of privacy everybody knew what was happening in your village everybody it was all open information so mm -hmm. i think we got used to a very private society where we could go out in the open outside the windows and we could walk around and nobody would know we were there that's changed anyway with your mobile phones in your pockets and just various types of data gathering security cameras all around the place that can track you anyway. So I think that's changing and people are getting used to that changing. I remember the thing uh, is changing. I remember the story from uh, from Great Britain that um, or Britannia in the old times uh, there was this book called Domesday Book. It's like Doomsday Book that basically recorded what what everyone owns and whose land is this and whose cow is that. And that was the first um, memory. That was yeah. the first memory of the public. So who owns what? And now with social media and all these images we are taking with these uh, 
cameras and so on and how automatic they become with Google Glass and other tools you just showed, it basically makes a archive of the private. Uh, so what we consider private space and uh, public space is already mapped. It's sort of common and normal. I mean, that someone knows uh, what, who, who a specific place or piece of land belongs to, but uh, the sort of the containments of your home, that's sort of where people draw the line. And now that's also sort of almost like opening. I remember another story actually from uh, the Netherlands that uh, these guys never have curtains on their windows, which is mm -hmm. quite the opposite of what we have in Finland. Yes, yeah. And uh, so everyone would have curtains here. There, everyone has curtains open. And uh, I, I guess it goes, in, in their case, back to history uh, of, of trade and so on. So having curtains on your windows means that you have something to hide. Okay. okay. And so uh, if you have curtains open, I mean, you, you go on with your business. No one cares what's going on. You know, it's, uh, but you have, at least you don't have anything to hide. So, these are very good questions. I mean, what are people afraid in terms of data gathering do they have something to hide i mean i can record our conversation yeah my nervous system and i can recall that oh, yeah, it, might, yeah. it might not be super accurate but how is that different from but even worse you can recall it in an incorrect manner you can exactly you might said something differently to what i actually said and you can tell a hundred thousand people this on some podcast and then as far as they're concerned i said x y and z and i may not have said that so it's it's a it's a fear that maybe is irrational. Maybe the idea of this lifelog data is actually self protection rather than a privacy invasion. Even so, there's a few points I probably should make that um, when I record this data, it goes into a strictly private archive. I choose what my research colleagues can see outside, and I certainly choose what gets made publicly available outside of the research center. So I still view the data I'm gathering, even though I'm walking around in the environment outside and I'm going home, getting up in the morning, having breakfast, etc., all on the camera. It's still a very private archive to me. So hmm. over time, it gets so big that you forget what's in there. You don't realize what's captured um, as you're just going about normal daily life. Maybe a partner's captured getting out of the shower or something. It's in there and you don't know what's in there. And this will be a problem for people as people move into this lifelog era. And then the data is there always. And what happens after you die? Who accesses it? Who can see it, etc. So it's a very interesting problem. Yeah. A lot more idea of security of the data and what happens if somebody wants to get access to it. And how can you keep it secure? As a computer science professor, essentially, I have a reasonably good ability to keep it secure, but I, I'm not an expert in that. And if I can't do it as a computer science professor, maybe. The average person who puts on a Google Glass version 3 and gathers the life log in a couple of years' time will really have trouble keeping their data secure and safe. Hmm. So it's major interesting issues coming down the pathway as we gather more and more data. Absolutely. Um, so talking about the personal analytics a little bit mm -hmm. and the quantified self-movement, um, what's your take on that? So, so what can we really, really learn by not just data gathering, but the analysis part, where we really dig deep into the qualitative aspects of what yeah. we have gathered. So there's a slight disconnect, I guess, between what we do in life logging, especially in this research center, and in the quantified self community. Um, in quantified self, the, 
the key question you always get asked is about the value of the data. What did you learn? How did you change? And that's very valuable. And that, that kind of tends to focus it on personal performance in healthcare. That's the key use case of quantified self. In life logging, we started off this process without knowing what we were doing. We started off by gathering data to build a search engine. Why? Because it's cool as a scientific challenge. Wouldn't it be great to search through your whole life? And from that, we're starting to find the use cases. But we aren't limiting the use cases and the data gathering to solve a particular problem, like my heart rate or my stress levels or the food I'm eating. We're gathering as much as we can. And we're building the tools over that to generate new opportunities and challenges. So it's a different way of thinking. Um, Qualified Self is great because it gives us access to real people's ideas and technologies freely shared in an open environment about how they self-improve and how we can learn from things like that. So for example, I recently started drinking butter coffee in the morning from quantified self-interactions that I've had with people. Um, Talk where, about that one. Yeah, butter coffee is great. It's where they allow us to, where they feed information in a very generous way to tell, tell you what worked for them. And this, this idea of quantified self, I really, really like. The whole community aspect to it. The fact that we can go to meetups in San Francisco and in Amsterdam every year and just talk to the worldwide community. It's great. I like that very much. But our research is just a little bit different in that we don't sometimes know why we're doing certain things. So my colleague is recording EEG data now with portable EEG sensors. He's semi-hacked together himself. And somebody says, well, why? Why? What are you going to get from that? We don't fully know, but I think we can identify when you're doing something important. Hmm. That then feeds into our life logging search engines. So it's a slightly different way of thinking about things. Yeah. We do it because we can, and we'll figure out the use case later. A lot of people, when they ask me about quantified self, they have in the mind sort of like, as if I'm doing it only for the optimization or, yeah. or, or improved performance kind of uh, targets. But maybe there is just um, a kind of uh, artistic almost uh, a, or a sense of wonder. It doesn't need to be Calvinistic alone while you gather data. Uh, in a similar manner, I have a lot of things that I gather because it's easy, so it's very automated, so I just do it. Like, let's say, you know, my postural data uh, would be very interesting. I mean, it's, it's now it's useful. It tells me when I, I'm not having good posture. Uh, but why would I gather that on, on the long term? I don't know. But maybe... Uh, I have the questions to ask later on. So maybe you don't have today the questions you want to ask. And this is actually the, the thing, uh, the thing that I see is that if I gather, for example, sleep data, I'm not looking at it every day. Um, it's automatic. My center on my bed sheet. Uh, yes. I've used Bedit and I've used Mfit, both Finnish, Finnish uh, products that basically do it automatically. I don't have to think about it. Uh, if I sleep really badly one week, uh, which is clearly out of uh, my average. Then yeah. I would go back and I would look at, can I discover something from the data? So I'm happy that I have the data. So yeah. in a way, it's sort of like having the data for uh, to be immediately available if you need it. So you don't have to... Exactly. Oh, it's, I don't have any data on it. So. You can never go backwards and gather data. It's one of the things that we always assume here as well. That if you want to gather data, even if you don't know why it going to be useful, it probably will be useful in the future. Gordon Bell and Jim Gemmell in their book, Total Recall, it's not here, um, they state that in a way that's really nice, that they say that every piece of data about you is potentially valuable to you. You may not know why yet, but it's potentially valuable, so why not keep it? 
It can be gathered in a passive manner without having any major effort on your behalf to gather the data. Just gather it. Maybe you'll never use it. Maybe I'll never need to identify my galvanic skin response map back to my images for some, for some reason, but I have it there in case I need to. Hmm. And you can't go backwards and retrospectively gather personal life experience data. You can't crawl a data set of life experience data from the web like you can crawl for a search engine. You've got to go and build this data yourself. Yeah. The, the thing about health data is that uh, it, it would be very cool to see how your basic health markers are changing over time. So uh, seeing how you were doing like on the last decade or the decade before that one. Yeah. And uh, even though you were generally healthy, it would be interesting to see like long-term changes uh, that can be only seen from data on the long term. So the, the act of measuring something is not for acute need at all. Uh, it's also for long-term use. Uh, I find yeah. that very interesting. Also. And it's also that you don't know what you can do with the data yet. So there's an academic argument, because obviously I'm an academic. There's an academic argument that I have to address periodically, which comes from certain people in the pervasive computing community who will say, well, don't record anything unless you know what you want to do with it. Why are you recording anything? Unless you know what you want to do with the experiment with, why are you getting this data? And my argument back is always going to be, we just don't know yet, but we have to gather the data. Otherwise, we're limiting ourselves in what we can do by what we think about being able to do, rather than a serendipitous understanding that comes from a small group of people looking at a, a TV that shows your life experience in color and saying, oh, you know what you could do? You could do this. And then that spawns off new research challenges. And then suddenly somebody's doing a PhD in the area. It just works better in the way we do it, as far as I can see. Mm. Much more spontaneous ability to go and do cool things without having to have it planned out and thought out in advance. And that's probably where a quantified self is different. In quantified self, you record something you want to record to find out something you want to know. In life logging, as far as I can see, you record whatever you can get your hands on to figure out what you want to do with it later. So where do you see all of this heading. So uh, if, we, if we look down the road, you probably have some predictions. So. Yeah, so I, I predict that the idea of a surrogate memory is maybe by the stage, stage it happens it will be implanted, but the idea that your memory will be enhanced by an external resource is, as far as I can see, going to happen. It makes a lot of sense to do that. Just like the glasses enhance my eye ability, the watch enhances my ability to tell the time. If I've got a heart bypass or heart implant that does the pacemaker in my heart, that's an additional body technology that we're, that's providing benefit to the people. And nobody thinks twice about that. So why not have a memory enhancement? Why not be able to recall anything you want to recall at any point in time by having access to an external source of information? And of course, that external source of information can be what you've experienced through wearable sensors, but it can also be enhanced with mm -hmm. the, the activities or the knowledge gained by other people who have been in your environment, people you know. Maybe you can learn something from a book or from knowledge that your friend has read in the book without you ever, ever having to read a book. That kind of idea of self-enhancement of your cognitive performance. Hmm. I think it's, um, uh, yeah, uh, rephrase. Uh, I recently came uh, across a new term uh, and the idea was basically the following. So what comes after Internet of Things? Uh, and and uh, it was all about Internet of Thoughts. Okay. So, 
So we will bypass, I mean, uh, the technology will merge with us. You will have kind of direct access perhaps to uh, non-human and human appliances in terms of memory. And you can access that in real time. And the uh, technology, let's call it artificial intelligence or whatever, can uh, follow your behavior. And once you have the need for specific information, it will just come to you. So it's like yeah. internet yeah. things. They just come to you. You have a conversation. Uh, it seems like you are trying to remember a word or a year number or whatever. It just comes to you. Uh, oh. uh, two like or whatever. Memory anyway, 10 seconds later, but it comes to you faster. Yeah. You don't yeah. waiting or thinking or going back to that place in the room to remember what you wanted to do. It's all there. I, I wonder how that will change us and um, because that uh, frees certain uh, capabilities or capacity for to be used yeah. for something else. Mm -hmm. Einstein famously uh, was in an interview with a journalist and the journalist then in the interview asked Einstein about his phone number and he basically took the phone book and started searching for his own mm -hmm. phone number and then the journalist asked why why does a smart uh, wise uh, guy the smartest guy in the world Einstein have to look at uh, his own phone number and uh, his answer was uh, was that why does he need to remember the phone number if it's in the book? So yes. uh, I think that's a valid argument. I mean, what what kind of things can we sort of uh, leave aside, forget forever, because we can recall it and, and make that capacity um, available for something else? I work in a university, okay? I have three exams somewhere in this room I have to correct tonight. The idea that you'd have to memorize to go in to do an examination, that can be revolutionized. I think that examinations in the future can be based on your ability to access knowledge and use the knowledge rather than recall the knowledge. Hmm. So, like, I correct exams here every twice a year where I'm literally looking at exactly what I've written down on my course notes, coming back on the paper. That's not valuable for people. That's just getting marks in an exam. We can replace that with the ability to think, understand, extract value, and solve problems with the data. Absolutely. Can be solving issues rather than learning things. I totally agree. We are evaluating the wrong thing, considering the time uh, where we are in. So it's in companies it's all about how to solve problems, mm -hmm. how to tap into uh, the, the non-human or human appliances, search information, ask people, use your social networks uh, to solve the problems that you're facing every day. But still. In many schools, we go to various tests alone, and you are prohibited of using the technology to aid you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's fine. I mean, that's a skill, uh, a valid skill, an archaic skill to train, obviously. And there are some techniques that you can deploy there. Uh, one one method that comes to my mind is the method of Loki from uh, the Roman Empire. Basically, that's what they used to learn uh, or memorize the speeches uh, three, four-hour speeches by using this kind of memory palace technique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's many techniques that you can use to memorize things, but then how do you really tap into all the technological capability that is available to that mankind uh, to just be able to be better at being human? In a it's way, enhancing the person rather than remembering everything that you've ever looked, ever read. I had to do this when I was in high school. I had to read Shakespeare plays and i ended up actually a long time ago 20 years ago or more we ended up putting on a tape cassette of the shakespeare's king lear play every night as i went to sleep and 
by the time I got to four or five months later, even though I was falling asleep, my body had, my brain had assimilated the Shakespeare play. So I was able to go along and go from the start to the end, I could talk this Shakespeare play. And of course, I've forgotten it totally very quickly afterwards, but I didn't see it as being a valuable enough thing to spend my time doing, but if I can do it as I'm not doing anything else, falling asleep, I will pick it up and do it that way. And it wasn't a, it's not the way we should be educating people or evaluating people. And we do it all the time, but if I have an opportunity to do exams, I'll do an open book exam where a student has a book open in front of them and the exam tests their ability to use knowledge in the book rather than their ability to, to re, 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 well, regurgitate exactly what we've told them in the class. So that's one of the things that will massively change by this technology, the ability to use knowledge rather than just store knowledge, just store information. That change. And it can come fast enough for society and for people. I think that provides a completely new definition for a knowledge worker. So yes. knowledge work is no longer work that you do alone in a basement with your books and you work on immaterial things. It's really about this kind of networked, uh, connected work, where uh, co-creative work, where uh, whatever you engage yourself in, you constantly... Um, basically question yourself if it makes any sense to do it alone or should you augment whatever you're doing in a certain way. And ideally the augmentation just becomes, like I don't think about wearing my glasses, they're there. The augmentation just becomes a natural part of life experience. And if you look at Google and listen to a guy called Ahmed Sinkha, head of search in Google, he talks about the search engine becoming this pervasive friend, this thing that exists all around you and the google glass they're getting there where i could ask it any question and the search technology will answer my question back as best it can if it can't answer it it'll show me some cards that are their web page that answers the question better so it's about that pervasive friend that's always there the memory should be augmented by a pervasive memory that's always there to help you out and to allow you to be more productive more well, better in your normal everyday activities yeah, absolutely. That's so, another question about the future um, on the artificial intelligence. Are you on the boat that uh, you believe that artificial intelligence is something that we have to control, that okay. it's, it's a threat in a way uh, and it can get out of hand? Or are you more optimistic or pessimistic in terms of its capability I'm now optimistic. that you've been working on it for I'm optimistic. Um, I'm not a complete expert in artificial intelligence. We deploy artificial intelligence and those kind of technologies to solve our problems rather than building new AI technologies. I would be on the optimistic side. I think that we as humans have a limited capacity to innovate. And I think as you have technology that can solve problems for us, that's better. So the idea of how to reach and have it and live on Mars successfully, we probably won't figure that out fast enough. That technology will figure it out on our behalf. So I'm positive in terms of that. In terms of solar power that will power the planet and then have to dig up coal and destroy the environment, it probably will take artificial intelligence to figure out that solution as well to make life better for everybody. So I'm positive in terms of it. Whether it can cause us sufficient problems all comes back, I think, and I'm not an expert at all, to the concept of what's conscious, what's not conscious. If it's conscious, then it has, it has to keep its own consciousness alive, and that becomes problematic. But consciousness, nobody understands what it is. It's a result of probably information processing that happens inside your brain. But just because this camera processes information doesn't make that conscious. So I don't know um, is the answer. But I think I'm not concerned about it unless these things can be conscious and then can we prove that they're conscious and 
kind of you improve you improve that I'm conscious or you're conscious. It's a very complicated process. It's one way beyond what I would have an expertise in. Absolutely. I, I guess the whole term artificial intelligence is a bit uh, misguiding because it sort of implies uh, a sentient uh, yes. or, or consciousness to be present. But in the end, I mean, artificial intelligence can be just technology at its best. So yeah. Great algorithms that use certain principles from uh, neuroscience uh, to train a system to be better at recognizing patterns. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it needs to be conscious or uh, no. threaten your life in any way. Uh, that is exactly how we analyze the images in these cameras in terms of multi-layer multi deep learning neural networks that actually will analyze and learn from the data and our examples of data. Um, and chances are someone like Google with billions of queries per day going through their image search engine will be the best company in the world at doing this because they can train with all these billions of queries every day. So I'm not concerned about that. Consciousness is separate. Whether it can exist in a digital medium or not, we don't know. So let's not worry about it yet. That's my way of thinking. Right on. Could be totally wrong, and Elon Musk could be right. It probably is, but <laughs> that's that's what you can see. Yeah, he's he's actually investing now in research of uh, the moral implications of artificial intelligence yeah. because not many companies are going to do that investment i think it's, 10 no, million that it's a very important thing to do because if this becomes conscious can you ever turn it off it's yeah. a very interesting challenge yeah i mean the first rule of uh of robotics or whatever <laughs> it would be to hide or intelligence would be to hide and gather more information about this uh, uh, strange uh, uh, mankind, and uh, once you're ready, you reveal yourself. I guess yeah. if there is already something that is uh, already uh, thinking and uh, uh, planning something, uh, it's just uh, still in a data gathering mode, just, just like all of us are. Yeah, but I think that that is probably not the case at all. And I just don't know at what point can consciousness exist in a non organic medium i don't know I don't even know what consciousness is so it's a it's a difficult question to, to absolutely and these kind of difficult questions we're gonna uh, dive deep in uh the biohacker summit so that's gonna really? be 24th of september in helsinki finland check it out biohackersummit.com uh dr gatal gurin will be there as well and uh there's gonna be uh biologists and other kind of people who understand better of the also the biological processes and also i mentioned the elon musk thing uh, kai sotala is going to be there he received a grant from elon musk to do research on the moral implications of artificial intelligence max moore is over there he coined the term transhumanism and what it means to transcend uh, what it means to be human so um for listeners check it out and um to close up um i i like to ask a couple of um uh, one specific question from from people who I meet, uh, and that would be, what are the sort of uh, life lessons uh, that help you to live a better life that you learned to help you to kick ass, uh, wake up every morning as the better version of yourself? So if you had a couple of things, two or three sort of pointers that uh, come from your life experience, what so, would those be? What would you be your advice? My advice is, from my experience of trying to be as good and as productive as I can, trying to make a difference, um, it's simple, 
get up early. Okay, very simple thing. I've done a lot. I've read a lot of, and now I've read a lot of productivity blogs and documents and even books about it. And I think get up early in the morning time is the most important change I've made to my life in the last ten years in terms of productivity. The second in line of that in terms of productivity again is schedule deliverables, not tasks. So it's easy for me to allocate two hours a day to write a document. It's not easy for me to allocate, get that document done by four o'clock. That. There are two key things that made a difference in my life. And a lot of it does come from reading about the area of quantified self and analyzing my own life experience of what works, what doesn't work. So it's get up early and it's to allocate or to have time stamps for delivery of tasks, not time stamps for tasks. That's uh, that's awesome advice for all those nocturnal animals. <laughs> yeah, I, I used to do, and now I get up at 5 a.m. every morning. Yeah, so, I mean, it's uh, it's important to reset your circadian rhythm and keep the clock running, and and just uh, the the effect effect on on a biological level is is uh, there's a lot of evidence there that sitting in uh, in the darkness and, and in front of your computer is not necessarily the best thing. Not um, at all. And I'm lucky that I tend to travel to Asia quite a lot with my job, so um, I do get to reset my clock back to five or four a.m. starting points every couple of months, so it makes life easier. Yeah. So let's hope this technology will liberate us so that uh, we don't have to be stationed in any specific place, but we can live more more natural uh, through the natural more natural cycles and and still uh, benefit of the augmenting capabilities of technology. So thank you very much, Karl Gurin, and. Um, cool. Uh, it was a infinite, infinite pleasure to have you. Looking forward to seeing you again in Finland on the 24th of September. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye.